peaceful protest. We walking, raising awareness. Some of the injustice that we've been seeing is not okay. And as a young person, you gotta you gotta listen to our perspective. Our voices need to be heard. People are gonna look back. Our kids are gonna look back at this and say, "You were a part of that." I got a grandfather that marched next to Dr. King in the '60s, and he was amazing. He would be proud to see us all here. We gotta keep pushing forward. Sports are like the reward of a functional society. Sirius XM Sports presents Forward Progress, a weekly open conversation on race and sports in America. Here are your hosts, Jason Jackson and Kirk Morrison. It's Kirk, it's Jax, and we got a full docket this week, don't we? Yeah, I mean, it's the inauguration. It's King Week. We're here supporting projects this week. I mean, it, it, this is this is a show. Yeah. If it's your first time, I mean, like, you know, to get in the goods. <laughs> this is it, man. I'm telling you, trust me. Uh, it's, you know, one of those uh, weeks in which, like, you get excited, like, man, we got so much. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you're trying to dissect and you're, you're looking at this, you're looking at that, you're watching this film, you're getting caught up on, you know, other documentaries that's going on. It's like so much. It's like this big culmination. But obviously with MLK Week, it's a little bit different, though, right? It just, that one just hit differently. And to have the inauguration in the same week as well, yeah. definitely a huge week. Well, we'll stay with him, LK. Uh, a brand new doc uh, that's available in some theaters around the nation, but definitely everywhere you stream. You'll find MLK FBI directed by Sam Pollard, the Emmy winner, the Oscar nominee, uh, connected to the Tiger documentary, which we just finished uh, watching, which we'll talk about as well in a little bit. Uh, but... Uh, that that one got me nervous, man. I've I've heard all the rumblings. Uh-oh. I know all the stories. Uh-oh. You cheated. You watched it already. I was <laughs> I was gonna hold off till after we talked to Sam. So I'm looking forward. I couldn't. I couldn't help it, <laughs> man. When I saw the title pop up, I got nervous uh, because the surveillance that was done on Dr. King was absolutely despicable, particularly in the way that it was going to be utilized. We'll talk with Sam uh, about that. Uh, but coming up in just a little bit, Will Lowry, Doug Smith, both. Predict- Professional golfers, dynamic brothers, have a brand new podcast, uh, Beyond the Fairway. We'll talk with them about uh, being black in, in the game of golf in a little bit. But, uh, brother, I'll start with you, and I'll give you my thoughts in just a little bit. Uh, we're taping this just, you know, 90 minutes after the inauguration has come to a close. Uh, the change from an, a, a dark era. There's just no, way, no other way to put it when you talk about uh, the division you talk about uh, the death um, when you think about the injustice, lack of fairness, and this pandemic all coming to a head. Uh, but then seeing the light, hearing things that sound familiar. We always in politics have the discussion about we've got to change it. We've got to get it on the inside. We need some outsiders on the inside. We, we might need some professionals I think that's what we've learned over the last four years. Send professionals to Washington. Send great leadership. That's what it is. Yes, it's about sir. leadership. It's, it's it, the our country is not a business, right? Even though we are the uh, you know the most sought after country, everybody loves our ideals and what we represent. But it, it's a country that still needs leadership and the right leadership. And the one thing that. Um, I think that we can say possibly over the last four years where there was a bit of division that came back that we were hoping to get past that we were working through in years prior. And to think that in with this being MLK week, that 
where Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech was, you know, in 1963, trying to eliminate the two Americas. And right. yet, you know, here we are in 2020, 2021. And the same things that we we're talking about in 63 were still valid. They were actually brought back to life, I felt, over the last four years. And to think now, where does, does our country go with the new administration, new President Biden, Vice President Kamala Harris, the first lady vice president, first of all, and lady of color as well. So she's checking more boxes, um, giving a lot of hope, giving a lot of, we think, much needed change and much needed voices. I think us in our professions, Jason, we've we've been around some coaching staffs, uh, sporting events where sometimes you need a new voice within that team mm -hmm. because it, it's it's just not where it was before. You got to shake things up. And this is the shakeup because it was voted on by the people. The people voted this, that we need to change. If they wanted to keep it the same, then you wouldn't have voted. You would have just kept the way that our country was being ran. But to me, to, to see the, the, the voter turnout, just the overwhelming support of something new, something different that will hopefully get us and bring us all together. That, that's what this week has now sort of been. And I think I had a chance to just reflect this MLK week because last year, my mind wasn't where it is right now, Jason. I feel like Couldn't have I'm just, yeah, like I'm more awakened in 2021 than I was in 2020. I'll be honest with you. Because there's a lot of things that I think living in your own bubble that it's like, ah, it don't really concern me. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden you realize, no, it actually does concern oh, me. And it, right. it, it concerns the future of me and my, and my children and my family. I thought the moment of President Biden's inauguration speech was where he directly addressed the problem that we must bring an end to this uncivil war. Yeah, that we've been waging against one another. But I will tell you the highlight of the inauguration uh, had to be the inaugural uh, youth poet, poet laureate, uh, Amanda Gorman, who's now 22. Mm -hmm. And just a here's just a taste of her spoken word excellence she dropped. How could catastrophe possibly prevail over us? We will not march back to what was, but move to what shall be a country that is bruised, but whole, benevolent, but bold, fierce, and free. We will not be turned around or interrupted by intimidation because we know our inaction and inertia will be the inheritance of the next generation, our blenders, become their burdens, but one thing is certain. If we merge mercy with might and might with right, then love becomes our legacy and change our children's birthright. Kirk, I was moved yeah. as she was providing us those thoughts. Many, she admits, uh, she wrote moments after the insurrection at the Capitol, and you could hear her weaving and many parts of, of, of her piece in that space. But the beautiful thing about this group, my oldest son's a part of this group, my youngest son is emerging in this Generation Z group. They're ready to speak about it. They're not trying to hide from it. They step up, use their platforms, get into the streets, get into their craft, their gift, and give us some guidance. 
Yeah, I think that's a great point that you make. It's it's a lot easier for Generation Z. Now, let's get it. Let's, let's not you know get it twisted now, Jason. We done laid some groundwork now. We, we done laid the groundwork for Generation Z. I don't know if I'm giving the millennials any credit. But go ahead. I'll take some Gen X credit. But yeah, but I, I think the bigger thing now is that the ability to assemble, the ability to find the group or groups that you can bring people along, not only educate them, but to go out and and really make change. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the one thing that I learned, especially from the protests of the summer of 2020, that th- the information was out there and it was readily available. And I'll think back in the, the MLK day of marches on Washington, things like that. That was kind of a word of mouth. You heard about it and you had to plan it you know, months and months and months in advance to get everybody there. Now, this Generation Z, man, you put a tweet out, okay, we'll be there next Thursday. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> it's a little bit different, but yeah. I, I love the the way that they can organize, but organize for good. And people are starting to listen to both sides rather than to be so one-sided. Kirk Morrison, Jason Jackson, Forward Progress uh, on this King Week on uh, as we tape on Inauguration Day. Uh, it was such an odd dynamic in our lifetime. We've never seen anything so, um, I don't want to say disconnected, because I want to give props to the inaugural organization committee, a bipartisan committee that gets that done. Uh, to the way that, uh, in many ways, Vice President Pence behaved. I, I tip my cap to him. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't understand what now for, former President Trump was getting from not being in place. Like, I, don't, I don't know what that, it, it, was that just a discomfort on his part? Is it a message he's trying to send to his constituents? simply couldn't come to grips with the fact that it would be so grand of an end rather than being able to control the end earlier in the day heading to Florida. What, what, did, what did you come to conclusion on there, if anything? I think it's still not conceding for the, the known and still playing to a fan base and keeping a glimmer of hope that he's going to do four years of striking up the people who will follow him and say, well, let's take another stab at this thing in 2024. Let, let's do it again. Because see, watch the four years, and it's going to be comparisons. He's going to put up some pie charts. He's going to say, look at the four years I was there. Look at the four years here. So I think it plays into his narrative. Where's he going to put it? <laughs> oh, trust me. Somebody, somebody. Oh, yeah. You know, is somebody going to put it up there. Oh, yeah. Somebody uh, gonna find another channel. What's that other thing? I, <laughs> I can't even find half that stuff. And I don't know if he, 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 he has as I don't know if he has as soft a landing over at Fox anymore. By the way, right? But I think as that that time does come, you know, because it's four years, and then it's going to be time for either a reelection for Biden or he might be disqualified from four years. Yeah, we'll see. But I, mean, I think it plays into. Honestly, Jason, it plays into who, you know, kind of who or who he's been or what we've seen. And for me, it just didn't work for me. Um, I look at the highest office in our country as you as, as, as not only a leadership role, but to always be comfort, even in moments of chaos. And I never got that. 
No, I never got that. Like, yeah. if there's chaos, tell us it's going to be okay, not incite it even more. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, what are the controller in chief, right? That's right. what a lot of people talk about. One of the most important jobs uh, that you have in that position. And my sadness for that disconnect was quickly washed away as the regularity of watching former presidents uh, arrive, uh, watching both parties in, uh, we're almost, you know, people talk about the last four years. I really look at it as the last 12 years of just this unique and intense energy just to oppose, not to propose, right? but just oppose. And I'm, maybe I'm being naive, man. I'm in the middle of uh, reading A Promised Land right now, Barack's yeah. memoir, uh, which apparently has another volume after these 700 pages, all right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Should have got the audio book, let Barack read yeah. it to me. Go get that audio, but, yeah, go get that audio. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm caught, because of him, I'm caught up in what he refers to as American exceptionalism. Mm. There's still nothing like this around the world, Kurt. No. You know, I've traveled this globe. There's yes. nothing like this. And by the way, when I look outside my window here in South Florida, mm-hmm. the world is reflected on these streets here in America. And there just simply isn't that type of place. Of course, there are other places people like to travel. But I'm yeah. talking about conduct their business, educate their children, uh, try to embody this uh, th- th- this union that is still not perfect, right? But trying to make it that, and that's what you got from President Biden and Vice President Harris. The the hopefulness and uh, hell, even just in the way that Gaga took us with the anthem, he just had <laughs> me floating, man. Um, it, it was just it was a good positive spirit that I'm much more used to. Let's take a quick break. We can go on and on about this, but we can't because we need to take a quick break. We're going to give the people a little taste of a brand new podcast. It's debuting this week. It's called Beyond the Fairway. Their hosts, Doug Smith and Will Lowry, I should say Doug Smith and (laughs) Will Lowry, will be with us here on Forward Progress when we return. Stay there. You're listening to Forward Progress on Sirius XM Radio. Forward Progress continues. It's Jackson. It's Morrison. And we're so happy to bring Will Lowry and Doug Smith onto the program. Beyond the Fairway podcast debuting as we speak. I'm, I'm excited about this. NBA Sports, I mean, I should say NBC Sports uh, has a brand new podcast. Uh, two black professional golfers, both Will and Doug, uh, talking about relatable and entertaining topics from the world of golf. They deliver in-depth interviews with celebrities, athletes, and golf influencers about their game. So apparently I'll be on their show soon. I'm excited about it. We'll have to flip this whole thing around. Yeah, for, the people, hey, for the people listening, I got my red tiger shirt on today. My red yeah, tiger golf shirt. So if y'all didn't understand why I got the red polo on today, it's my red TW polo letting y'all know I'm all in. I'm ready to win. Gentlemen, take us to the beginning of of this this partnership and this project. Uh, Doug, we'll start with you. We'll give us your thoughts on on how this all came together. Uh, Man, it's such a loaded question, Mr. Jackson. Such a loaded question. Long story short, it's funny. I'm glad, uh, Kurt, you're wearing that red because that red almost got me and Will killed is how we met. You know, we met at a golf course in the hood. uh, Chester Washington out in uh, South Central L.A. outside of Inglewood. 
And um, at the end of the round, Will and I had to leave, but the the whole the the, the pro shop is used as a multicultural center for, for the community. So Will and I were leaving the golf course, but there was a home going celebration for a crip. And uh, Will tells a story. It was the worst day he's ever wore red because I'm in a blue Ford Fusion. Me and Will trying to leave the golf course. We had just met. And uh, there's a sea of Crips from the entrance to the golf course out to Western Parkway, which was about 300 yard driveway. And uh, that's where we bonded. That's where it all started. That, that was the first time we went beyond the fairway, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> to say the least. Yeah, that was 2011, and uh, it took us 15 minutes to go 300 yards through this group of Crips at a home-going celebration. I gave you the long version of the story, but uh, regarding the pod, Will called me up and was like, Dougie, I got this thing I want to do. You want to be a part of it? And I said, you ain't got nothing going on, man, but, but if you got something, I'm in. And uh, next thing I know, I'm talking to y'all. So Will is... Uh, Will Will is is one of those people that that bring folk with him with everything that he's working on. I'm just proud to be on the other side of that rope. Yeah, well, I think that's the question for you is is just to see that avenue, that space of golf, and to have a different voice because you two are different voices in golf. Some that we have never heard before, right? It is more of a British or guys with a, a different dialect. So when you thought about bringing the golf from your aspect, how did you bring that along? Well, man, my thing is, man, I just want I just want somebody to to talk about golf uh, from our pad and pen. You know, so many people who give their opinion about the game of golf and they try to put their two pennies of of uh, the minority spectrum of golf, which they, they have no clue doing. And I just remember when I was a kid, used to watch Big Break. I was such a huge fan of, of a lot of the, the black golfs I saw on television. I don't know if I'm about to date myself a little bit, but I remember the, the Albert Cruz and, and, uh, and uh, Brian Cooper's and all those guys that was on big break, just seeing a person of color, uh, you know, holding a golf club that, that did wonders for me. So, you know, as we fast forward to where we are now, I just try to figure out how can we carefully create uh, introductory content to the game, to, to my, to my community, because I, because I, I know, Doug and I can can attest to this. We know what golf has done, especially in its benefits that it bring, brings us uh, having to be associated with the game. It's Will Lowry and Doug Smith with us here on Forward Progress. The podcast is Beyond the Fairway. Episodes are available right now on the SiriusXM app. I'm wasting little time getting into what we were talking about before we even got on. I, if, if Pernell Brown would like to maintain producer of the year status, he's just going to clip off what we were talking about and just jam it in this space. If he refuses to do so, Let's get into this now. Uh, documentary, uh, HBO. I've been watching it on HBO Max. So I had to, you know, I had to wait for the streaming to drop down for me because I don't have mm -hmm. that appointment viewing time during the NBA season. Uh, I, I want to just clear the runway to let you two go uh, because you see it so differently. But we'll try to frame this discussion. Doug, we'll start with you. Your, your, your framing of... This documentary, along with how you would view any documentary that does not have the principal individual in it, agreeing to it. <laughs> I like how you said that. But look, here's the thing. My, when I look at a documentary, like you said, we all were kind of talking about before the show got rolling. I want to know some things. I want to know some background. I want to know what happened. What was the story? I want to see the fall of, of the protagonist. And then I want to see the person be built back up and end on a high note. When I, you know, those are the kind of documentaries that I like and, and that I can gravitate toward. We all felt that with the Jordan documentary, uh, The Last Dance. And then with the Tiger documentary, I felt the same. You know, I think a lot of people and, and I differ. I want wanted to know um, 
I want to know that Earl had had some moves on the side that he had, you know, some ladies that he was teaching. You know, I think that frames, you know, Tiger's actions as an adult uh, uh, very well. I think it provides context of of the apple not falling so far from the tree. Um, but I also like the fact that Tiger was able to, in his older age, um, kind of get back to um, some of the things that you learn about empathy and romance and love that you get when you're a child that Tiger missed that he did was able to pick it up later in life, especially as you look at his son and daughter, Sam and Charlie. So, And then we got to see him live action uh, pre um, documentary with Charlie at the uh, PNC father son. So we were all were on this Tiger Woods high. I do find it disrespectful that they put it out after the, the father son, because we just saw our hero and have these powerful moments with his son. So um, I enjoyed the documentary. Yeah. Some things could have been redone or done different, but um, I enjoyed it. And I'd watch it again. Bill, do you concur? I don't give much credit to a documentary. If the, the person who the focal point is not a part of it, um, I just think the fact that, um, that to the golf enthusiast, to the person who loves Tiger, who loves the game of golf, we all knew the events pretty much verbatim, step by step. Uh, we, we knew the, the first steps of Tiger on a thousand step journey of his the whole dichotomy of his life. And I think the Winnebago part was just tasteless. I, I'm not sure what it, what it, what, um, what it gained. Um, you know, people want to say that uh, part of the reason who he is the way he is with the women was because of the uh, action of his father. Can we, can we exclude the thought the fact that he had 10,000, 10 million women come at him every day? Could that just be a part of, a part of the reason why he may have fell short? You know, um, we, we understand that his, you know, just, just how he grew up, you know, very, uh, maybe so much of a recluse, you know, to, to maybe shape the, how he, he fell short. And I just think that it was just a tasteless move on that, on the, um, the director. Hey, well, I'm going to stick with you on this one, because one of the things from the Tiger documentary that I got, and I think this is for everybody who's watched it and who will see it, is that Tiger had to develop the love for golf again. The, the fun part, the fun aspect for your recreational golfer, your PGA golfer, you know, guys who play in tournaments, that you have to develop that love again for golf where you just have fun. And I thought that Tiger Woods had lost that. And so I present the question first to you, Will, and, and, and ask you the same, Doug, is that w what is the joy that you guys get from playing the game of golf and then being able to talk the game of golf? I mean, we can do the basic, we can do the basic that the competitiveness, what it does for us. But I, I'm, I'm going from the fact that a little deeper, I'm going to dive a little deeper. I'm going to the fact that the sheer culture of capital that it brings, the sheer um, the ability to bring social mobility uh, developed social assets for being part of this game. And like I said, Doug and I benefited greatly from uh, an understanding of putting the ball in the hole uh, before everybody else. And uh, I, just, I just want, and that's one of the things I really value that I want to introduce to our community, it's just the social mobility, man, just the, all the things that this, this uh, game brings. And, and uh, that's, that's pretty much what it's done for me, man, more off the course than on the course. Same for you, Doug. Same for you. What, what's that? I'm gonna take a little bit fun more, or, a less or. a less bashful response. Look, I've been <laughs> playing golf. I'm 36 years old. Okay. I've been playing golf for 32 years. It's literally the only area that I'm an expert at. You can't teach me something about golf. Jack Nicholas could come in here and we could talk about some different things. But from an X's and O's swing execution standpoint, he can teach me something on like you know executing certain shots against winds and those types of things. But when it comes to how to get the ball in the air, how to play 
play, how to fit clubs, how to be around the industry. There's not a lot of people that can teach me that. So I actually enjoy just my expertise. I have confidence in that expertise. I'm able to go into the country clubs with my chest held high and my chin up where some of my, uh, uh, you know, like skinned brothers might, you know, have their <laughs> head down when they go into to some of these arenas because it's not always comfortable when right. you get that invite, you know, to to some of the premier clubs because you are going to be the only black on property. So I enjoy um, I enjoy having that expertise and I enjoy what I'm able to do with it. You know, everybody's like, you should play golf and, you know, business is done on the golf course. Yeah, that's that's true. But being good at golf, that that opens up a different world, like oh, being duh. a good minority player. Uh, you know, I can say some things to some people and you you can you can believe me. You can check my scores. You can check my history of, of tournament scores and the money I've lost and earned um, because of you know what I've done. So that's that's, you know, one of the things that I really enjoy. And, and I, you know, to hearken on Will's points. Absolutely. You know, the social mobility. You know, I'm from Versailles. Kentucky, not Versailles, Versailles, as country as, as it is, you know, just sitting here with y'all. I'm not supposed to be here, but because of this game, man, I'm, I'm right here with y'all. I got a quick follow real quick before I pass it to Jason, just because when you, you, you mentioned that, is there a sense of pressure that you guys feel in your performance when you do go to some of these clubs and, and, and people are going to look at you and say, what these dudes know about golf? Not, they, no, they don't even belong here. Is there a sense of pressure that you got to show them, not only do I belong, but I can perform? Yeah, that's the thing. It's, it's the, called the art of code switching. Um, <laughs> I, just, I just believe the fact that um, you have to present yourself in a certain way uh, and, and then you have to go perform. And then that kind of breaks down the barriers. It, it's kind of funny to me when, when you, looked at, you looked at it as one particular way, but the minute they find that you can hit a golf ball down a fairway, it, you can see how the whole aura changed amongst, mm. amongst everybody. Yeah. I mean, it's not fair. It's not fair. Uh, it's it's a definitely unconscious unconscious bias that is bestowed upon you as soon as you uh so you step on the course. But I mean, I, I enjoyed that part of it more than more than anything else. I had this wonderful experience uh, mm -hmm. during COVID. The only positive to come from it, my my two student athletes, a track and field athlete and a basketball player, falling in love with this game that I love so much. Uh, listen, basketball's paid all our bills around here, mm -hmm. right? But this game, it's something else because of the camaraderie, because of the memories, because of the places you get to go. And then when you share that with your offspring, and I'm blessed enough to have these two boys that, that we, we just have to grab one. And he, whenever one of y'all are available, we got our foursome ready to go. We're ready. But things are decent, right? Like I've done okay. And so the resources to have it, the opportunity uh, is is a little bit different than most of our people. And so I don't, I haven't been able to come up with the equation um, that pulls you all off a track where you're in the middle of a, going home with a gang versus being at this beautiful Biltmore that's not too far away from my house here in South Florida. I don't know if that country club experience is as important to the great black athlete or the, or, or a, just a black athlete gravitating to this over the traditional sports. What is that bridge? If there is one. That's a tough question. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a tough question because um, the facets involved, you know, when you look at, you know, if we go get real basic, 
right? You know, when you get in elementary school, say you're a public student, you know, some of the things you're able to be interested, introduced to or baseball, basketball, football, tennis, even not even so much tennis. I don't want to say tennis. No, I didn't mean to say tennis. I apologize, Will. You know, Will's backgrounds in tennis, so I can't say that. Uh, um, But all the team sports, all the team stuff you can do, hockey and lacrosse, all that you get through your public education. There's teams, there's coaches. There's things like that, you know, in golf, if you're not good at golf, by the time you get to high school, you're not going to be able to make that team. Like, so that means, you know, for a golfer's existence, you know, from being like eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, those are very uh, important years. And I don't think there's a lot of focus on that age bracket when it comes to black and brown communities because of the investment, the, the monetary investment, you need money, you need space, you need somewhere to hit the damn ball. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it ain't just easy to go, you know, I got friends as well as myself. I grew up hitting balls in the, in the outfield of baseball diamonds and also using the, the dirt as bunkers. Like I would scrape it all together when I was a kid and I would make a little mound, put the ball on top and I'd hit bunker shots. But that was, that was my dad saying, well, I don't know nothing about this golf thing, but if we can take him to this big ass field and he can hit, then that's, that's a win. So my dad knew nothing about golf and sorry for going long, but my dad knew nothing about golf in those formidable years. Um, there, I didn't have access to, to the driving ranges and, and country clubs like other kids did. And, and, you know, when you look at that particular instance and you extrapolate that over the country, how many kids from seven to 12 actually can get into this game uh, for free? You can't do it. It's impossible. So, you know, there's a lot of barriers to, to the entry of golf, especially in black and brown communities. Yeah. Uh, to second that, the National Golf Foundation conducted a study, I think 2018 was the last publication, was where uh, 16% of minorities, blacks, let's say blacks, were interested in the uh, game of golf at the introductory level. So when we go from there to uh, having black participation at the collegiate level, it falls down to 0.8%. That, I mean, that tells you in a nutshell where we are and, and how we are um, a part of the game and its growth. So my, my question to both of you guys is now how throughout the, through the pod now that you guys are doing, how do you guys go out and, and get people to get more interested in playing golf, getting the younger generation? What guy, who, who should I expect to be coming on to listen to uh, in the coming weeks to hear from you guys and, and, and give your perspective on where golf should be going? You know, right now we got the episode coming out with Ray, Ray Allen. That's a great mm-hmm. episode. We touch on a yeah. lot of different pieces. That's out. That's live. Is he, uh, is, he, t- is he one of the best? Dress golfers, by the way, best shoe game golfer. Period. Shoe, okay, shoe game. Okay, there. I, I, I should have said that shoe game golfer because when you going out there wearing any color Jordans, you won't, man. That's yeah. that's that's yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and 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 that's loaded too because sometimes I see some guys who dress well in their and, can't do nothing. and no, not so much that, but the outfit <laughs> match their iron covers. It just doesn't. It just doesn't work. Yeah, <laughs> God, you can't. You can't do that. Too much. <laughs> you can't do that. So are you well-dressed? Are you just a buffoon? We don't know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, Tish Aline is coming on. You know, we, we I really enjoy her spirit and her story. She's fun. And then, um, you know, we got to leave something to the imagination. We, we can't tell y'all all the secrets just yet. But, you know, what what our show, um, and, and Will, I don't want to speak. This is, you know, we have to remember this is Will's vision that was, is coming through fruition. Um, I'm just kind of co-sign on it. Um, but, but for me, it's, it's the ability to, to connect. Um, so like we looked at our, um, our Apple podcast reviews, people writing reviews and there, there's a kid, I don't know his name, but he just said, I've been waiting for some content like this from people that look like me. And that was so powerful. So simple. 
it was so simple, but so powerful. I didn't have anybody that looked like me growing up playing golf. You know, Will wanted to be like Michael Chang growing up instead of Michael Jordan. So um, <laughs> this is an opportunity for people to see us talk about the game in a, in a way that they, they've never heard. And that's, that's exciting. And that's, that's, I think it could be powerful. We appreciate the time. We look forward to many episodes of the podcast Beyond the Fairway. You can check it out on the SiriusXM app. We understand in February, mm-hmm. I'm getting free at last. I love it. The NBC Sports Audio Channel 211 will be the home of everything locked in for this fantastic podcast, Beyond the Fairway. Gentlemen, congratulations and all the best. We appreciate y'all, man. Y'all stay blessed. Let's play. You got it. Oh, yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Let's get it in. No doubt. Stay close as forward progress continues. We jump inside another piece of cinema we all need to lock in on. Kirk, when I saw it pop up on my screen, MLK slash FBI, I got a little nervous. We'll talk with the director. He'll let us know if I should be nervous or if I should just be strong and dive in on this fantastic product. It's Sam Pollard with us on forward progress when we continue. We now return to Forward Progress. Here's Jason Jackson and Kirk Morrison. It's Kirk, it's Jax, it's Forward Progress. And Kirk, as I told you, I was sitting there flipping through options of things to watch, get myself prepared for Inauguration Wednesday, just get my mind right. And on this King Week, well, there was a title that popped up. And, I, and I'm so glad that we have the director of that title. It was MLK FBI. And Sam Pollard's the director. He's with us here. It's in uh, select theaters. You can find it, as I did, on uh, video-on-demand platforms such as iTunes, Amazon, Google Play. Find your favorite AT&T, DirecTV. It's, it's there waiting for you. Sir, first of all, thank you. Good to see you. Good to have you with us. My pleasure. My pleasure. And talk to us about this project, uh, and particularly uh, on King Week, uh, what got you inspired in this place uh, to tell this story? It all started about uh, two and a half years ago. The producer of this film, a gentleman named Benedine, had read a book about Dr. King and the FBI and, Doc- and J. Edgar Hoover and how they had been surveilling, monitoring Dr. King's life. He thought the book should be our next film. We had already done a film together called Two Trains Running about uh, the search in 64, 1964 for two iconic blues musicians, Sunhouse and Skip James. So I read the book. I completely agreed with my producing partner. And we reached out to the historian who wrote the book, David Garrow, who I knew. He was a consultant on Eyes on the Prize. We optioned his book. We went to Pittsburgh where he lives. We took a a camera crew to his house. And we spent four hours with him, basically having him videotape, tell us about the book, the genesis of the book, the information in the book, which became the framework for telling the story. And the story is, is that after the 1963 March on Washington and Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech, William Sullivan, one of J. Edgar Hoover's close associates, made this statement that Dr. King was the most dangerous Negro in America, and we need to follow him and monitor him. And with the permission, the sign-off by Robert Kennedy, then the Attorney General of the United States, they started to wiretap and then bug Dr. King's hotel rooms when he was going around the country. And in wiretapping Dr. King, the, the initial reason was because they thought he was flirting with communism because of his relationship with a gentleman named Stanley Levinson, who had been a former communist. But as they were wiretapping Dr. King, they learned 
unexpectedly that Dr. King was having relationships with other women other than Coretta Scott King. And then they decided they would use that to blackmail Dr. King or send it to the press to discredit and destroy Dr. King's reputation. Now, it was, it was the thing to remember, this was the 60s, and the press didn't dig into people's personal lives like we do today. So it never took, it never took hold. So, so the FBI, under the directorship of A.J. Edgar Hoover, went to, so far as to create a letter in the voice of a supposed African-American, basically saying to Dr. King, we know who you are, we know what you're all about, and you know what you need to do, which was intimated that maybe he should kill himself. So they composed this letter. Then they put together an audio tape, supposedly of Dr. King in a relationship with a woman in a hotel room. And they put it in a package. They sent that letter and the audio tape to Coretta Scott King, hopefully hoping that it would really upset her and anger her and she'd want to leave Dr. King. And this would really, you know, destroy his reputation as, as A. Philip Randolph says at the beginning of the film, the moral leader of the movement. And it didn't take hold, and it really obsessed J. Edgar Hoover. And he ended up calling King around the time King got the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964. He basically stated to the press that King was a notorious liar. And that same year, King and Hoover met for the first and only time in Washington, D.C. And then, as you know, King went on to win the Nobel Peace Prize. And by 1967, he decided he could not in good conscience, support the war in Vietnam. So at the Riverside Church on April 4th, April 4th, a year to the day that he would be assassinated, and then on April 4th, 1968, he made that, speech, made that speech at Riverside Church, basically denouncing the war in Vietnam and knowing full well the impact that would have on his relationship and the relationship the civil rights movement had with the Johnson administration. And it also quite honestly, upset members in the civil rights movement who felt Dr. King had lost his way. You know, why are you dealing with the war in Vietnam when you should be focusing on the domestic agenda of segregation and racism in America? And that's the whole film. Yeah, Sam, it was so much, it was great. Um, I could not stop. Like I, I was like, I want to wait, talk to you first and then watch it. And I said, no, I got to do it. And I watched it in its entirety and I thought it was beautiful. But one of the takes that I did get from it, Sam, was this. I think for someone who didn't live in it in that era and to kind of watch what was going on and, and see through the documentary, just how scared and afraid the U.S. government, especially J. Edgar Hoover, was of not just Dr. Martin Luther King, but also Malcolm X, the Black Panther Party. I think that you can see American government was scared. That's the reason why they had the wiretaps because of how influential guys like Dr. Martin Luther King were that can get people thinking, that, hey, look, this is two Americas that we live in. And there's one side of America that just won't give the other side the equal rights that are necessary. I felt that was huge throughout the doc because you can see it in so many different aspects of it. That's exactly right. It was two Americas. And as you know, back then in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, white America was happy or unconscious about the fact there were two Americas because we as black people were on the fringes. You know, they saw us only as maids, as butlers, as drivers, you know, chauffeurs, as shoeshine people who went and did their working, we did our work in white communities and we went to our black communities, they didn't see us. 
We weren't in the television. We weren't in movies, you know. And so that's why when someone like King, Ralph Abernathy, A. Philip Randolph, and all these other civil rights activists came to the fore, it just frightened J. Edgar Hoover was basically standing for white America because all of a sudden black people want to be integrated. You know, aren't they happy in being being second class citizens? What's what's the problem? <laughs> what's the problem? What are they? But you know, they get, they can eat, they can go to sleep. They just we don't want them to eat and sleep with us. You know, so that's why they were so obsessed with trying to destroy King because he was galvanizing the people like Malcolm was like the Black Panthers were, they were galvanizing American, African-Americans. So that's why these people were looked, as, looked upon as radicals. And they were, the FBI was monitoring them because these, all they could think of, these people are going to destroy the notion of America. And America that we, we were, what, second-class citizens. <laughs> I mean, project you, is, I'm the sorry, project is MLK FBI. The director is Sam Pollard. He's with us here on Forward Progress, Jason Jackson with Kirk Morrison. Uh, Sam, talk to us about the inclusion of uh, former FBI director uh, James Comey and the perspective he provides. Well, you know, my producer, as we were thinking about who to interview, he says to me, why don't we reach out to former director James Comey? I said, you think he'll, you think he'll say yes? He says, well, what do we have to lose? Have to lose. <laughs> so we reached out to Comey. And uh, surprise, 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 as Goma Powell used to say. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Comey said yes. So initially, it was supposed to be an on-camera interview, but then he had to change his schedule. Then he asked us if we could just do audio. So Ben Hedin and I got on the phone with him. Ben was in Atlanta. I was in New York. He told me, I guess, I don't know where he was. We, we had 20 to 30-minute audio interview with him. And I think the, the thing that he says that you that heard in the film, Kirk, he says for him, this was a shameful period, the darkest chapter yeah. in the history of the FBI. You know, And uh, I think he really... So it was very sincere about how he felt the FBI had done Dr. King a complete and horrible disservice. You know, I, I'm loving the documentaries now that give us uh, a, a trip to the past. And in this one in particular, Sam, it seems that the, all the footage that you got, whether it's the images, the video, the, uh, the, new, the new renderings, being able to bring color to which was once black and white photos and black and white videos and to see the faces of what the people looked like, um, how it was not just all black, it was people of all races, of all nations yeah. that well, came you forget, out. Yeah, you forget that. Yeah, and I think a lot of times people forget that, that it wasn't just African-Americans and blacks that were out there. To me, it was everyone. But I think for me, the hardest part for me to understand is that I think living in today's country in 2021 that we sit in now, that the term Negro at the time, for me, it, it's, it's still offensive, but to hear it used so easily back then, like that's what other blacks called themselves, the Negro, the Negro. And, you know, for me growing up, born in 1982, I, I wasn't around that. I just, that's the part to me that, that always I found striking with the documentary as well. Well, you know, I, I, I'm much older than you, man. I was born <laughs> in 1950. <laughs> so I was definitely a Negro in yeah. 1963, man, 1964. I mean, you know, but, you know, the, those of us in the black community, we, we revered Dr. King. And Jason, right. you might remember this, you know, in black, households, in black households back then, there were three images we would have on our walls. Dr. King, mm -hmm. John Fitzgerald Kennedy, and Jesus Christ. Come on. Yeah. You remember that, man? 
Listen, <laughs> I, I'm almost there. I didn't have the JFK, but there was definitely MLK and Jesus. Yeah, Jesus we'll see. My, my, we'll see. My aunt, my uh, my great aunt. She it was Willie Mays. So that was <laughs> that. <laughs> that's who she had in place of JFK. So I'm just full disclosure. So yeah, I was around it. I saw it. But it was Willie <laughs> Mays. <laughs> hey man, Willie Mays. Huh? I, you know, I grew up. I grew up in the household. My dad was from Mississippi. And he had he had gone to St. Louis to New York, and he was a big St. Louis Cardinals fan. So it was it was Clue Brock, Kurt Flood, Bob Gibson, yeah. Bill White. They were the big baseball heroes in my household. That is something else. That's good stuff. Uh, Sam, one more for me. Kirk may have one more before yeah. we get out of here. But uh, uh, twenty twenty seven, six more years. You go. You gonna get the band back together? As these uh, king tapes uh, come out of, we, we, we may have to do we may have to do a twenty minute addendum, man. You know, a twenty minute follow up. I I hadn't thought about it, but now the more I talk about it, the more I think we may have to go back into the into the archive and, and pull out some new stuff because to really put some, put, in, put some resolution on what's on those tapes. You know, one of the last things uh, for me is that obviously you've also done other films and you've been an executive producer and, and you know, had credits with other documentaries, most recently the Tiger documentary uh, on HBO. But as I was going through some of those credits in the MLK FBI, uh, for me, with my football background, I saw a name and I'm like, no, nah, that can't be the Let me don't wait. There's only one Jeffrey Lurie to me, who's the CEO and chairman of the Philadelphia Eagles. And to see that he also had a credit and worked with you on this film as well. He just for the, the football fans out there, people who see him as just the owner of the Eagles. He's also a guy who's in the business as well. Yeah, you know, he started a documentary company a few years ago because he wanted to really support the fun documentaries that dealt with all kinds of issues, particularly social issues and about. I'm going to say in the spring of 2019, one of his executives, a woman named Marie Therese, she met with myself and Ben in Manhattan, and we spent like an hour and a half together. She had seen the sizzle reel. She was extremely excited by it. She had showed it to Jeffrey. He really liked it. So we sat down with her and talked about, you know, the possibility of Jeffrey's company called Play Action, mm -hmm. you know, helping to fund the film. And we had such a great talk, Marie Trace, that at the end of that meeting, a few days later, she gave us a call and said that Jeffrey was in complete support of giving us, you know, half the funding. He gave us half the funding to make the film. So wow. I take my hat off to Mrs. Laurie, <laughs> you know, for supporting this documentary. He is Sam Pollard, Emmy Award winning and Oscar nominated director and producer, MLK FBI is the new project in theaters now. If you stream, you can find it. Go find it out there. Go That's check right, it out. Brother. And, and before we run, for the people that are enjoying the video version of our conversation, give me that Tuskegee one, one time. Give it to me on that Tuskegee. There you go. There, there it is. is. <laughs> there it is. Because my, son, mama. Come my on. son went to Tuskegee. I yeah, love it. Is. I love it. Absolutely yeah. enjoy it. Thank you so much, sir. We Thank appreciate uh, this, this next project, and we advise everybody to dive into it. Thanks very much. Have a good day. Oh, absolutely. Kirk, another great week, my man. 
Yeah, absolutely, man. I mean, some heavy hitters, but that was uh, this was this was this was special uh, as we take this on inauguration day. Once again, we appreciate Mr. Sam Pollard for being on the program. Uh, congratulations and a thank you to Will Lowry and Doug Smith from Beyond the Fairway Podcast for our producer, Fernell Brown, Kirk Morrison. I'm Jason Jackson. We'll talk to you next time.